Welcome to Food and Wine with Chef Jamie Gwen. Celebrate food and life by learning about the culinary scene around the world. Speaking with chefs, artists and food makers, farmers, authors and tastemakers who are passionate about everything delicious. A very good weekend to you food lovers. Chef Jamie Gwen in your radio. Celebrate food and life by learning about the culinary scene around the world. Every week, you'll hear from chefs and artisan food makers, restaurateurs and farmers, authors and tastemakers who are passionate about everything delicious. I'm all about living the best life, and so we'll dish on health and wellness, wine and cocktails to sip and savor. We'll touch on tech trends and more. So I hope that you'll tune in every week. You can always find podcasts of shows you might have missed on iTunes under Food and Wine with Chef Jamie Gwen. And you can find my daily dish on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Chef Jamie Gwen. I'm always serving up seconds as well at chefjamie.com. So let's get to the culinary conversation, shall we? Fresh lemons are a workhorse in my kitchen, and they find their way into everything, as I'm sure they do in yours, from marinades to lemon cakes to lemonade to chicken and asparagus and more. And lately, you've been hearing on the culinary front more and more about preserved lemons. But have you made any, or did you buy some? How are you using them? And do you know that they pack a punch that is so lemony and so umami and so fabulous that you should be incorporating them into so many of your dishes. Here is a quick lowdown on the beauty of preserved lemons because they are fabulous for so much more than just a tagine. Preserved lemons add a fermented quality to a dish that a regular lemon does not. And if you've jumped on the fermenting bandwagon, then you already love that tangy, salty, umami bomb of flavor. They add a big punch. There's heavy citrus and beautiful floral notes from the oils and the peel. And it's that extra something in the background of a dish that really enlivens the palate. So what is this lemon that is really more than a lemon? Well, originally, lemons were preserved for the same reason that all things are, to store and then eat them past their season. We can trace the roots of preserved lemons back to the earliest recipe reference in actually the 12th century. I love culinary history. And over the past thousand years, these salt-cured lemons have made a journey north and west and joined the cuisine of Israel, uh, Iran, Turkey, India, and more. And yes, they started in the Mediterranean. Now, preserved lemons were likely introduced to American audiences in the mid-1970s. Paula Wolfert wrote a James Beard Hall of Fame cookbook um, entitled Couscous and Other Good Food from Morocco. And then um, Claudia Rodin's subsequent A Book of Middle Eastern Food made its debut shortly after that. Now, despite making their way into American cookery more than 40 years ago, preserved lemons have sort of kept this aura of exoticism in the United States. You're most likely to find preserved lemons in Moroccan chicken tagine, the most well-known of dishes, but you'll find them as well in curries and stews and a lot more ethnic preparations. But... 
With that said, there are so many wonderful things to do with just that straightforward all-American roasted chicken that you make when incorporating preserved lemons. Now, you can buy a jar of preserved lemons ready to eat, but you can easily make them yourself. You just need a little bit of time and a little bit of patience. The recipe calls for nothing more than lemons and salt. And I happen to add a touch of sugar for sweetness because I like that it offsets the acid and the salt. And all you do is simply start with a handful of lemons. You cut each into six wedges, leaving the peel, the pith and all, and you toss them with salt and you refrigerate them overnight. And the next day, the lemons will have released this big bunch of liquid and you transfer the lemon wedges and the liquid to a canning jar, pressing the lemons down so that you ensure that they're submerged and you seal the jar tightly and you store it in a cool, dark place for a month or more. Um, By the way, preserved lemons are one of those things that get better with age. And the result is a lemon whose texture is very soft, but the flavor is really intense and you get this velvety peel. It's like the most intense lemony character known to man. Now, I find some of the preserved lemons available uh, store-bought overly salted. And so I adjust my ratios to make preserved lemons at home. And I actually store mine in the refrigerator uh, because you can keep them for quite some time, in fact. Um, And I swap out regular lemons for preserved ones for, as I mentioned, uh, roast chicken and fish. Um, For an easy weeknight meal, you can toss pasta with good olive oil and garlic and some chopped preserved lemon peel. And it is simply elegant. You could always impress your friends at brunch by chopping up preserved lemon peel to garnish a yogurt parfait. You could add them to your potato salad, add preserved lemons to your guacamole, so good. Your grain salads like a farro salad with preserved lemons and raisins and olives and tomatoes. And then, oh, how about a preserved lemon peel twist for your martini? Oh, yes. Now, these preserved lemons, they do last in the back of the fridge for up to a year once they've had their preserving or aging period. Um, And I know that you can make good use of them. You never know. They might become your newest favorite condiment, right? If you would like a recipe for making preserved lemons at home, my recipe, I will gladly send it and share it. Please email me, jamie at chefjamie.com. It's J-A-M-I-E at chefjamie.com. And very happy pucker preserving to you. Now, uh, let's move on to food news, shall we? Are all expensive wine glasses worth the price, you ask? Well, let me tell you, I found one that is, and I don't even think it's that pricey. And I bought them, by the way, just so you know, this is not a sponsored segment, but rather a suggestion for sipping and savoring in very true, incredible style. So a little bit of backstory. On a recent trip to New York, my mom and I had the luxurious experience of dining for lunch at The Grill, which is the eponymous New York restaurant um, that was recently taken over by a new group of restaurateurs. um, And I will tell you an extraordinary experience. Um, It's in the Seagram building in Midtown Manhattan. And surrounded by big wigs and decadent decor, we sipped Chardonnay, from a wine glass that totally floored me. 
and I thought you really needed to know about it. So the name on the glass itself, uh, the company producing this glass is called Zalto, Z-A-L-T-O. And Zalto glasses are hand-blown in Austria. They are feather light in weight. The stem is so thin and so graceful that you can't help but want to hold on to your glass. And the rim is so thin that sipping wine from the crystal is heavenly. Now, Zalto wine glasses have only been around for a few years, And they're quietly making this small range of very beautifully made, competitively priced products that deliver wine superbly. Uh, My mom generously gave me a pair of Zalto Chardonnay glasses for Hanukkah. I've since added to my collection. And seriously, it is a life-changing wine experience. So uh, I am a certified sommelier and very proud to have passed the level one test. I pride myself on uh, a professional chef education, and I will tell you, you must have these beautiful glasses in your collection if you are an onophile, if you are a wine lover, and if you know a wine lover, uh, they're just outrageous, and they're available on Amazon and beyond. So you can learn more at zalto.co.uk, which is the English version of their website. And by the way, cheers, because that is food news that you can use, of course. Speaking of toasting with fine wine, coming up this hour, we are going to have a lively, lovely food and wine conversation. Oh, and we're going to extend your years on this planet too. You see, coming up next, we are going to savor wines from New Zealand. Master sommelier Cameron Douglas is joining us live, and he's going to share the terroir and the state of New Zealand wines as they are up and coming in the world. He is a wealth of knowledge, a wine genius, really. And I'm very delighted and flattered that he's here. Master sommelier Cameron Douglas coming up next. Before the end of the hour as well, New York Times bestseller, Dr. Michael Greger will be here. He has what he calls the Daily Dozen. Those are 12 foods that you can aspire to fit into your daily eating regimen that will add years to your life. Yes, he is the author of the book, How Not to Die. And I think he has some really good tips. So do stay tuned. Chef Jamie Gwen in your radio. When we come back, we will raise a glass. Master Psalm Cameron Douglas in your radio right after this. Welcome back and cheers, Chef Jamie Gwen in your radio. The more you understand the terroir, the vintner, the bouquet, the more you love about the wine. And on this show, we explore the glorious world of wine to learn and to relish in it. And it is time to pop the cork and fill your glass because New Zealand's first and only master sommelier is here. Not only does Cameron Douglas carry the Master Psalm credential, and by the way, there are only around 230 people who have attained the qualification, but he earned it as the first in New Zealand. In fact, at the time, the first in the Southern Hemisphere, and he took the trophy for top marks. 
Cameron is an experienced wine writer, reviewer, and consultant, and he's at the helm of the wine and beverage program at AUT University in Auckland. And in New York, Cameron Douglas created the wine list for Matt and Barbara Lambert's Michelin restaurant, The Muscat Room, which was awarded its Michelin star only four months after opening. I am delighted to share with you the great Cameron Douglas as he waxes poetic about wine in your radio. And I'm very glad to have you. Hi, Cameron. Hello. It's my pleasure (laughs) to be here. Well, it's a delight. Thank you. Um, Do tell us where in the world you are. I reside in the city of Auckland in the northwestern side. Uh, Our property where where we live actually used to be part of a vineyard, which is converted to a housing Mm. suburb. And I've lived here all my life so far. How very fitting. Um, How is the state of the wine world in New Zealand? Before I ask you to share your best bottle or give us the, you know, perfect suggestion for Sunday supper pairings, um, how, how is the elevated New Zealand wine offering uh, today? Because I think it's come a long way. Well, you're correct about that. New Zealand wine sector is going from strength to strength, and it's certainly not without its challenges. There isn't a wine part of the world that doesn't have challenges from time to time. Our current challenge is the 2017 vintage that was, but the exciting opposite to that is the 2018 vintage coming up. So we're, we're very excited to see something big happening this year. So exports are up. Yes. Um, to the United States especially, but also to our counterparts over in Australia and in the Asian sector as well. We are experimenting with everything from biodynamics, organics. Uh, We have the most comprehensive sustainability policy of any wine-producing nation in the world. And for a little tiny nation of only 4.5 million people, we are targeting $2 billion worth of wine exported by 2020. Wow. We expect to uh, achieve that a little bit before then as well. So we're looking pretty smart, I have to say. Yes, you are. That's very impressive. Would you touch on some of the best growing regions in New Zealand uh, in your opinion, and, and grape varietals, some of the characteristics as well of what we can expect from a New Zealand wine so that we can really expand our horizons. New Zealand is essentially made up of 11 wine regions with the newest one in the northern part of Otago, right close to central Otago. My favourite wine regions, I have to say, let's start with Auckland because Auckland is one of those areas where there are quite a number of producers, but little is known about how much is undervine here and whereabouts uh, the grapes are growing. So just very briefly, a number of your listeners may have heard of one of the islands called Waiheke Island in the Auckland Harbour, and that's going very, very well, about 30-odd wineries there, planted to Bordeaux varieties to Syrah, to Chardonnay, to even Sauvignon Blanc and Pinot Gris. Mm. The very southern tip of Auckland is uh, a place called Clevedon and producing some very good Bordeaux varieties there. And at the northern tip of Auckland is a place called Matacana. You'd probably have to zoom in on a Google Earth map of that, but (laughs) Pinot Gris once again, Syrah and Bordeaux blends. Perhaps one of our more famous producers is Cumu River. Yes. 
some of your listeners may read that and mispronounce it as Kumayu, but it's pronounced Kumu River, and we produce top-class Chardonnay from that part of Auckland. Yeah, and beautiful Chardonnay, by the way. Yeah, just beautiful. Gisborne is another favorite area for Pinot Noir in particular. Mm. Some of your um, listeners may not be aware that almost all New Zealand wine regions grow Pinot Noir, but the famous places really are Central Otago and Canterbury and Marlborough and Nelson and a place called the Wairarapa, which is part of the Greater Wellington province. Mm -hmm. You can't go past Hawke's Bay for wine. Again, Chardonnay, Mm. Syrah, some Pinot Noir is grown there, lots of Sauvignon Blanc again, and a fledgling, sparkling wine industry, which I think is something to um, enthuse the listeners about, that we do some remarkably good sparkling wine from New Zealand. Yeah, and something different. I'm glad you mentioned it, because I think a New Zealand sparkler is something unique to share and to uh, to educate ourselves on and to sort of spread the gospel about because you don't think of a New Zealand sparkling wine when you immediately turn to Prosecco or Cava, right? The funny thing is that the, the biggest influences on the New Zealand sparkling wine uh, sector itself are in fact um, the French mm-hmm. and of course their Champagne and one producer in particular that uh, I favour a lot is called Number One Family Estate and the gentleman and his family, the Lebrun family, are in fact from Champagne, trained oh. in Champagne, but make spark- bottles for me to sparkling wine in New Zealand. So you can imagine how good that actually is. Of course. And we've just started exporting that to the USA as well. So it's certainly a brand to keep an eye out for, number one family estate. They, in fact, produce out of Marlborough, which of course is our largest wine Region. And I'm interested to ask you and to know, because you mentioned uh, multiple uh, grape varietals, but you, yeah. of, but you, of course, sprinkle in Sauvignon Blanc in most of those regions. In years past, it was said that more than 80% of the wine production from New Zealand revolved around a single grape, and that was Sauvignon Blanc. Is, is that number becoming... Uh, more more equal, more neutral with the new varietals that are coming into play from New Zealand? Yeah, good question. I think statistically Sauvignon Blanc still has the um, Majority. center stage yes. and the throne for New Zealand <laughs> because our reputation has been built on such a strong variety and it remains at the top of that pyramid. I think, however, what's nipping at its heels a little bit really is our strength in Pinot Noir, mm. our strength in Pinot Gris, yes. possibly in Riesling and most definitely in Chardonnay. Collectively, the other varieties mm. do um, challenge Sauvignon Blanc um, for the drinking public. But it would be remiss of me not to say that Sauvignon Blanc is still the backbone of our wine industry and, in fact, plantings are set to increase, not decrease really? or stay the same. Hmm. Because of its popularity. We're sipping and savoring with Master Sommelier Cameron Douglas. Stay tuned. More on New Zealand wines right after this.
Masters, and welcome back. Chef Jamie Gwen in your radio with Master Psalm Cameron Douglas, live from New Zealand. I think it's lovely to know that they are delving deeper into the depth and the possibilities of Sauvignon Blanc outside of just that traditional New Zealand style. So it would be interesting to have a... It would be fascinating to me, rather, to have a Sauvignon Blanc tasting with you and taste from the more, you know, maybe elevated Sauvignon Blancs that have come into play, because that is quintessential New Zealand. Totally true, and I guess why winemakers are trying to evolve the style of Sauvignon Blanc is that we have a number of things happening in our favour, and number one is vine age, Mm. number two, which is on average well over 20 years now, Hmm. Number two is the understanding of the soils and the way in which viticulture impacts on the quality of the fruit, the material that they're managing, and also the idea that the using indigenous yeast, there are some producers that are starting their fermentation in the vineyard using the wild yeast and then bringing that ferment into the winery, and this completely changes or adds to the uh, complexity and the aroma profile of these wines. So mm. the heart is still Sauvignon Blanc, but everything around it, the choir, the orchestra that surrounds these core flavors has grown enormously. I think that's amazing. And I love the way you talk wine. It's so very romantic. Uh, and, and it should be, right? By the way, if you've just tuned in, you're late. Because Cameron Douglas is here. Yes, he is New Zealand's first and only master sommelier. And he is uh, giving us a lesson on the state of wine coming from New Zealand. And uh, so far, they've, how they've come. And to the leaps and bounds that they continue to elevate to. How do you choose wines, Cameron, for New Zealand Wine Navigator? For your... Uh, your restaurant partners when you're when you're uh, creating a wine list that really highlights the best of New Zealand. Wow, that's a great question. I guess one of the first things I have to do is sit down with the owner of a restaurant or the chef and discuss the food, what their vision is for their food program, who they think they're clientele is or who they would like their clientele to be Mm. and what kind of wines that they also enjoy so that I can build a program around the answers to those core questions. As somebody that used to cook and manage a kitchen, my understanding of flavors and textures probably adds to my understanding of wine as well, so I'm able to meld those two things together. For sure. I also have to factor in really what wine is actually available in, say, the U.S. market or even the market here in New Zealand at specific price points so that I can figure out what the threshold of resistance might be at Mm -hmm. a particular place, whether it's, say, Michelin-starred or very popular or a fledgling new restaurant. And so I have to have a little bit of the familiar. Safety zone wines are very, Mm. very important. Brands that people can go, well, I'm not sure about those others there, but I understand this particular brand, but I didn't know they created that grape variety or made that kind of wine. So we're subtly taking people on a journey Mm. through something familiar into something a little unknown and adventurous, but 
if you've got a sommelier on board, then you've got somebody that's going to guide you through that program properly. Yes. So it's about food. It's about marketing. It's about the environment and the clientele. For sure. That's how I build a wine list. Well, it seems to be working, Cameron, so you should stick with it for sure. Uh, the Michelin-starred New York restaurant, of course, um, the Musket Room, uh, very much renowned for the focus on food um, and the, the New Zealand-focused wine list that you've created. One of the things that I've always loved about New Zealand wines is I find them immensely food-friendly, which speaks to what you were just alluding to. So tell us what you're drinking now. I know the seasons are different for you. We're having a rather cold winter here. And I would love to know your favorite food and wine pairings with, of course, New Zealand wines. Okay. I I think one of the more famous uh, foods that we export and that people are familiar with, say, in the United States, would be New Zealand greenlit mussels. Yes. And... They come in fresh every day. They're flown in every single day to Los Angeles first, and then they're distributed around that um, part of California and then across to the rest of the USA through Houston. Yes, and I love them. You cannot pass up a glass of dry New Zealand Riesling Mm. with freshly steamed mussels with tomato and um, fresh coriander leaves. That kind of uh, Mm. combination is enormously successful. Of course, the classic style of Marlborough Sauvignon Blanc with greenlit mussels as well. Yes. If you're adventurous and you like oysters, and Mm. we do export a number of oysters as well, I would certainly recommend bottle fermented sparkling wine from New Zealand. Because we're a long, narrow country and we have all this maritime influence, lots of cold southerly winds, we're classified as cool climate as well. So we have lots of natural acidity and winemakers strive to have ripe acidity in their wines. And because we can do that, wine seems almost a little bit sweeter, but it's, in fact, the ripe acidity that's pushing those messages through the palate. So oysters mm-hmm. and bottle fermented sparkling wine from New Zealand would be another. I'm a huge fan of smoked salmon. Oh. And not like the North Atlantic salmon that some of your listeners are used to. I'm talking about southern sort of New Zealand farmed salmon that's a little bit oilier and richer. Yes. And if we have Manuka smoked salmon, you cannot go past uh, full-bodied Chardonnay. So that would be one of my favorite matches is New Zealand full-bodied Chardonnay with smoked salmon. Yeah, the next time you sit down to that, will you call me? Absolutely. Please? Do you want to know what my favorite match is? Yes, please. It's actually... Fresh asparagus and clam risotto. And the pairing? And the pairing, well, if I flame the scallops in brandy or Grand Marnier, then, um, and lots of fresh Parmesan cheese, then anything from rosé, again, to a lightly oaked Chardonnay is a sublime combination. Okay, I'm so coming to your house for dinner. It's, it's okay. a bit of a long flight, though, so you'll have, you'll have to wait to sear the scallops, all right? It's only about a 12-hour flight, you know. No, it re- you're right. It really isn't bad. And I will tell you, it is one of the, um, the wine regions specifically and one of the places in the world I have not been and I cannot wait to visit. And there is no doubt it would be 
an extraordinary journey of wine tasting as well. So I thank you for enlightening us. You have an open invitation to come back at any time when you um, drink something new and different that we must know about from New Zealand. I hope um, that you will grace this show again. I'd be delighted. Thank you. I'd I'd love to have you. It's been um, a delight. Thank you. And, you know, truth be told, the land that most Americans have come to know via Lord of the Rings is actually home to extraordinary wines and spectacular scenery. And it is the wine regions of New Zealand that Cameron Douglas uh, knows everything about. He is the only master sommelier from New Zealand and truly an ambassador of their fine wines. Uh, You can follow his wine journey on social media at Cam Douglas MS, and also continue to elevate your New Zealand wine knowledge by reading his blog spot. You'll find him at CameronDouglasMS.blogspot.com. As we continue to perfect palates, one sip and one bite at a time. Cameron, thank you again for sharing your passion. Can't wait to have you back. My pleasure. Thank you. As the delicious conversation continues, we're eating and drinking to our heart's content as we'll be back with more fabulous food and fine wine right after this. Don't go away. Welcome back, Chef Jamie Gwen in your radio. Okay, let's dig in. The news that a plant-based diet is the healthiest way to eat is no doubt continuing to spread. And Dr. Michael Greger's first book, a New York Times bestseller entitled How Not to Die, presented the scientific evidence behind the only diet proven to prevent and reverse some of the causes of premature death and disabilities. Well, now the How Not to Die cookbook is putting that science into action. So it's time to incorporate more fruits and vegetables, tubers, whole grains, and legumes into your diet because they might just save your life. Dr. Michael Greger is here to dish, and I'm glad to have you. Hi, Dr. Greger. Hello. So happy to be here. (laughs) I'm very thrilled to have you. I hear a sound in the background, and just before we uh, began talking, I know during the break I asked, what was the ticking? Are you on the treadmill still? I am, of course, (laughs) on the treadmill, 17 miles a day. 17? Yeah. I I have a treadmill desk, so I just work on the treadmill, yeah. I think that's fabulous. And tied into um, a a brilliant diet of, as we know, plant-based ingredients, um, we can certainly live longer and healthier. So uh, to kick off the conversation, can you please highlight your what you call daily dozen? Sure. Yeah. I, um, you know, in, uh, in How Not to Die, the first half of the book, I, I, you know, it's 15 chapters. On each of the 15 leading causes of death, talking about the role of diet, may plan preventing, arresting, or reversing each of our top 15 killers. But, you know, I didn't want it to just be kind of a reference book. I wanted to be kind of a practical guide on, you know, making kind of day-to-day grocery store type decisions. So that's what became the second half of the book, where I center my recommendations around a daily dozen checklist 
of all the healthiest of healthy foods, I encourage people to try to fit into their daily routine. So berries every day, the healthiest fruits. Greens every day, the healthiest vegetables. A tablespoon of ground flax seeds, a quarter teaspoon of turmeric. Talk about the best beverages, the best sweeteners, how much exercise to get every day, in hopes of just kind of inspiring people to make uh, some of the healthier choices to crowd out some of the less healthy options. Sure, and of that daily dozen, you get them all in every day? Well, that's the, that's the goal. In fact, there's a free app on iPhone, Android, um, where you can kind of track your progress and check off the, you know, I, you know, check off all the portions and see if you can, uh, see if you can nail it, um, and how many days a month you can do it. I mean, look, when I'm on the road, you know, in some airport food court somewhere, I mean, it's lucky I can get, you know, half the check boxes uh, checked off on the day. But look, when I'm home and I have, you know, control over my diet, I do try to not be a hypocrite and uh, <laughs> and eat a healthy diet. I actually think it keeps you uh, responsible and, you know, living up to the goal when you can track your progress that way. I find it, I almost make it like a game, right? If I get all my steps in and uh, I feel motivated the next day to continue to reach new heights. Yeah, it's about accountability to yourself. Yes, uh, you know, um, that it is. And, uh, and you know, and, uh, you know uh, I, I mean, the reason that the Daily Dozen came about was, you know, I would, uh, you know, I'd be, you know, be digging through the, you know, medical library and find some amazing new, uh, you know, study about the beneficial effects of, you know, uh, of, of legumes or something, beans, flippy, chickpeas, lentils, and be like, oh, wow, you know, I didn't eat any beans today. Or I didn't, you know, <laughs> I find out something, oh, yeah, flaxseeds, those are so good. Right. Oh, did I eat any, you know. I mean, and so I had all this healthy food, but I just was, you know, I don't know, just, just wasn't thinking. And so I was like, all right. So I put a little white, like a little whiteboard kind of thing on my fridge, and put little boxes, and be like, "All right, did I get my beans today? Did I get my berries today? My greens every day? Did I get my cruciferous vegetables every day?" You know, um, and so that's how that's how it all kind of started before it was a little more formalized. And you're big on dates too, the edible, delicious kind. <laughs> yes, yes, um, absolutely, and also beneficial as well. In fact, I just did a, a new the, the videos aren't up yet, but I scripted a new series of videos on dates. Date and uh, pregnancy and delivery, crazy. And you can show remarkable things like accelerating um, uh, uh, stages of delivery by literally hours, uh, decreasing rates of induction, having to use these drugs like Pitocin to kind of artificially accelerate, lower hmm. C-section rates, really exciting things. All just date. So it's not Fascinating. just uh, a nutrient-rich sweetener. I mean, right. that's what we're missing with sweeteners is they have no nutrients, basically empty calories, right? So, oh, here's a way we can get nutrients, but beyond just nutrients per calorie like blackstrap molasses and dates, sure. beyond that, there are actually kind of medicinal benefits that have been attributed to date consumption. How smart. And then leave us with this, please. I understand um, from reading through your works that the old adage of an apple a day still applies. So dessert should be baked apples tonight, right? Oh, with some cinnamon on top. Absolutely. Sweet potato, right. I mean, there are sweet, delicious foods um, that can, that can, that, that have nutrition to add along with the sweetness. And so again, the best of both worlds. And as you start eating healthier, as your palate changes, as you start, start, um, uh, you know, keep uh, cutting down your ultra-processed food consumption, these, you know, ultra-salty, fatty, sugary foods that the processed food industry is trying to hawk us, all of a sudden our palate um, starts appreciating just the natural flavors and foods. Um, and so, again, 
you arrive at the best of both worlds. It's not this kind of a some kind of aesthetic monk kind of eating. It's like, well, I could never eat like that. Mm-hmm. You know, when someone sees me just enjoying like a sweet potato with some cinnamon on top, but they don't realize, no, no, if you eat this way, in fact, 10 days, for, uh, it takes a little longer for salt, but for sugar, 10 days of cutting out added sugar from your diet, um, all of a sudden, your palate changes. Dr. Michael Greger is ensuring that we will live longer and healthier lives. He is the physician behind the trusted and wildly popular website, nutritionfacts.org, the author of the New York Times bestselling book, How Not to Die, and the new release, the How Not to Die cookbook with 100 recipes to help prevent and reverse disease. You can also track your daily dozen using his free app, Dr. Gregor's Daily Dozen. It's G-R-E-G-E-R. Dr. Gregor, it's always a pleasure to have you. Thank you for the insight uh, and the health tips as we kick off this new year. Um, it is always a, a good goal to live longer and healthier, and uh, and I am following your lead. Fantastic. Keep up the good work yourself. (laughs) Thank you very much. And so that brings us to the end of another hour of culinary entertainment. This show is all about informative, entertaining, and delicious inspiration. And every week we sip and savor and serve it up. So I hope that you will continue to tune in. And I do thank you for listening. I'll leave you with my last bite for the hour, my last ounce or tidbit of gastronomic conversation. Whether it's for Meatless Monday or maybe a vegetarian side dish, or as we come to the close of January, you're still committed to eating lean and clean. Well, good for you. This is one of my favorite winter comfort foods. I call the dish spaghetti squash boats with spicy marinara and mozzarella. And you can make your own red sauce or you can start with a good quality store-bought marinara. You'll need a couple of whole small spaghetti squash. I like to cut them in half and put them cut side down on a baking sheet. I pour a little water into the pan and I roast at 350 degrees. Usually takes about 45 minutes until the squash is tender when you pierce it with a knife. You can also microwave spaghetti squash as well. And then in a large saute pan on top of the stove, in good quality olive oil, I'll caramelize some onion, add some mushrooms, toast some garlic, um, maybe throw in some extra veggies, uh, red pepper flakes, of course. And I add the tomato sauce and I let all the flavors meld for about five minutes. Then I use a fork to remove the spaghetti squash strands from the exterior of the squash, but reserving the peels. And I place the spaghetti squash strands in the sauce, add in lots of Parmesan cheese, toss it around, and put the red sauce seasoned squash back into the squash skins, essentially the boat. I top it with fresh mozzarella cheese and I put it under the broiler. And you get the most delicious, hearty, rustic, fabulous vegetarian meal that is really out of this world. I will post the recipe for my spaghetti squash boats with spicy marinara and mozzarella on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Chef Jamie Gwen, where you'll find my daily dish. You'll find a bevy of other delicious recipes at chefjamie.com as well if you're looking for advice and inspiration during the week. And then I will meet you here next weekend where there will be guaranteed more fabulous food in your radio. Once again, I thank you for listening. I'm Chef Jamie Gwen signing off and I hope you continue to eat well. Well.